So for those of you who don't know, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are working through a series in Nehemiah. We're just coming to the end. We got two more weeks in Nehemiah, including this one, and three more chapters. And I realized in preparing my sermon for this week that I got to cover two chapters. And in fact, the last time I preached, too, it was chapters six and seven. So I had to cover two chapters then, too. So I don't know what's going on in the teaching team, but I'm like drawing a short straw or something. So there's a lot of... There's a, and there's a lot that uh, I think God wants us to hear, and a lot that God wants us to teach, uh, but God, a lot that God wants to teach us in these moments. So I want to um, try and be mindful of time, but also work through these things. So I know that some families recently in our community have gone through the um, task of moving. I see the Cliftons sitting back here. I know that Renee and I, when we talk about the idea of moving, right, we've been in our house now 18 years, 17 years, right? And as you accumulate more and more stuff, the idea of moving becomes more and more of a burden, right? Have you ever sat and sort of thought, man, if I got to move all this stuff again, that's going to be a big deal. Nobody likes the task of moving. It can be a long task. It can take forever for boxes to disappear from the corner of rooms here and there. Well, we're, at a story, we're at a point in the story of Nehemiah where the wall has been rebuilt. They've renewed their covenant before God, and the, the gates are finally completed. Remember, at the beginning of the story, we, I think Pastor Greg mentioned how there was no gates to the city. It was like the front door was just wide open, right? So the gates are there. The people are there. They've renewed their covenant. And now Nehemiah is tasked with moving in. So now they're repopulating the city. And back then, repopulating the city required some sacrifice, Right? These people hadn't been living in this city. The, the story tells us that they've been living in villages. The people of Israel have been living with, in villages, or Judah, I should say, living in villages around the city. So moving into the city wasn't this like lush sort of like uh, condo in downtown sort of thing. The walls had just been rebuilt, but the city was still in shambles. So the, the, the idea of moving in wasn't just sort of packing up everything and like we experience moving, it isn't that easy, right? And they've established homes outside of the city in villages where their neighbors and families are. It was a lot more comfortable to live out in the villages, right? Living off of the land, farming, cultivating. So the idea of moving in was a significant sacrifice. One commentator I read said, leaving that safety net was a considerable inconvenience. But yet here we are in our story. Nehemiah is tasked with repopulating the city. But what we're going to see in the story is, specifically in chapter 11, is that it was not only sacrifice, but it was surrender. It was not only sacrifice, but it was surrender. Repopulating the city, what the story is going to show us is repopulating the city was an opportunity for surrender. I see this TV going in and out, so this would be a good plug to 
scan the code for our digital bulletin in the uh, seat pocket in front of you, and there's sermon notes you can follow along there as well. But repopulating the city was not only sacrifice, but it was an opportunity for surrender. So what I'd like to do is read from Nehemiah 11 now. First two, first two verses, Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. An opportunity for surrender, not just a requirement, not just a, a sacrifice, but an opportunity sur to surrender. We see that in these two verses. And what I see in these two verses is two biblical principles that I want to look at this morning. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. One of the, the, the first principle that we see is servant leadership. Look in the first verse. It says, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots. The leaders settled first. This inconvenience, the leaders experienced first. And this was no doubt Nehemiah's leadership qualities, his character rubbing off on his partners and his colleagues here. Servant leadership, we see that right off of the bat. It's important that in whatever sphere we sort of talk about this, that we are servant leaders, whether it's church, work, home, our community. They were faced with this opportunity that required some sacrifice. And instead of saying like, oh, no, no, like you, 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 move in, move in, move in, they all settled in first. I love how it, how it states that, you know, the idea that they, they settled in. No, they ex established themselves in the city. This wasn't a short-term thing. We settled into the city. Ultimately, this principle points forward to the ministry of Christ. We see in Mark 10, 45. So it's for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that, servant leadership, right? Jesus didn't just come and just say, do this, do this, do this, do this. No, he said, follow me. He says, I'm, I'm going to do this. Watch what I do. Tells parables. It's like this, or it's like this. So Jesus was a servant leader, ultimate example of a servant leader. But we see that in the first verse of chapter 11. What else do we see? We read on in verse 2. Or, I'm sorry, the second half of verse 1. It said, the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their towns, in the outskirts of the city. Second important biblical principle we see here is in alignment with God's will. So casting lots, I know that sometimes when I hear that, immediately my head goes towards, kind of like my situation in this series, like drawing the short straw, right? Who's got to be the one who has to move into the city? 
Remember, this was an opportunity to surrender. So the people's mindset were, who gets to populate the city, not who has to. But casting lots was nothing like that. In the Old Testament, casting lots was a way to find God's, it was a way to be sure that you were in line with God's divine will. So when they say casting lots, this isn't drawing the short straw, this isn't gambling. Casting lot was discerned whether they were destined to live in Jerusalem. There's a surrender happening here, and it's important that we see that. It wasn't a have to, but it was a get to. So when they cast lots, um, it's still, we don't really know for sure how it was done, or it could have been done in many different ways, but sometimes it involved uh, taking a group of stones, and you'd have like a, a bunch of white stones and then one black stone, and whoever drew that black stone, the ladies that are working through uh, the study in Jonah, you, you read that they cast lots to figure out where the storm or who caused the storm in the boat right before they throw Jonah overboard, right? So that could have been they were picking out different color stones or different color items, and whoever drew the black stone, it was them, right? Or in some cases, they could take uh, stones and they could put inscriptions on it, and that was probably most likely the case here. So they'd put 10 stones in a cup, and whoever drew their name, when their name was drawn, that's who moved in the sea. We don't know how it happened, but those are some ways um, that it could have happened. But regardless, that's not the point. It's the point that in, it, this activity wasn't just divvying out. It was discerning God's will. And we see that throughout Old Testament, Old Testament Scripture. We'll see in Nehemiah 10, when they were uh, renewing their covenant, and they're creating a schedule of families that are providing sacrifices uh, to the priests, for the priests. Uh, who is going to bring the burnt offering for the priests? We see that in Nehemiah 10. They cast lot, lots to determine when each of the families would bring to the house of God a contribution of wood. Here, the Israelites are creating a systematic giving as part of their renewed covenant. And, and they're doing this to cre create order, but the perception is that it's God's assignment for when each of these families were to bring the offering. We go back a little fur further in the story of the Israelites. We see in Joshua 18.6, when they're preparing to, they've conquered the land and they're preparing to divide it up among the 12 tribes. Joshua says, after you have written descriptions of the seven parts of the land, he's saying, after we've set out uh, men to survey the land, bring them here to me, and I will cast lots for you in the presence of the Lord our God. So Joshua, before the Lord, is dividing up the tribes of Israel. And then lastly, in Proverbs 16, verse 33, we see the lot is cast into the lap. So in front of us, we can see it. But it's every decision is from the Lord. So again, there's a, a posture of Surrender that's happening here. This wasn't a have to sort of thing. This was a get to sort of thing. So as they're casting lots, they're determining who gets to inhabit the city. Surrendering to the divine will of God. So then the question is, should we cast lots today? 
Like, how does this fit into New Testament theology? And believe it or not, there are still some churches out there that use this sort of practice, even when determining leadership, even when deciding who to appoint as elders. Now, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think we are meant to... Uh, I think this practice stopped um, after the day of Pentecost, once we received the discernment of the Spirit. But um, I put in the resource section at the bottom of the um, sermon notes, or you can see it online in the, in the notes section, there's an article on the, the Gospel Coalition's website. Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung wrote, writes an article about this, and it's specifically about choosing elders, but the principles of the article really make sense, and I think he describes it really well. Uh, so you can check that out on your own time. Well, what do we know about discernment as New Testament believers? Well, this is what we do know. In Romans 12, 2, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How are we able to test and approve what God's will is? By being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Step back to our series in, uh, on last fall through the book of Ephesians in Ephesians 4. It says to put on your new self, to make a new attitude in our minds. Now, the way of life that we've learned when we heard about Christ and we're taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The renewing of our mind is a surrender, not only to Jesus, but to the teachings, to what we were taught in him, in accordance with truth. So rewind again another fall, and we get back to our Read the Red series, where we go through the Beatitudes. That summer, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. It's our guide to Christian living. So through that surrender, Paul tells us that we are able to discern the will of God. So in chapter 11, we see two big biblical principles pop out right at the beginning. Servant leadership and alignment with God's will. And we have to remember as, as, it, as the people were populating the city, that was an opportunity for surrender. It wasn't just packing up and moving in. Yes, it was a considerable sacrifice, but what drove them was the opportunity to surrender. Interestingly, it says at the end of um, that section in chapter, two, in chapter two, the people were commended. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And that same language of volunteering we find back in the book of Judges with the prophet Deborah in Deborah's song where she's commending the armies of Israel. That also reminds us that moving into the city and repopulating the city, right? We, we heard in, in, in uh, chapter 7, I believe, of Nehemiah's story that the enemies, right? They were turned away. God caused them to lose their confidence. But we have to be reminded, too, that that kind of military language of volunteering reminds us that these people are kind of putting themselves on the map. They're saying, we are here. We are a city, Right? And so there's a, there's a danger involved there as well. You're kind of putting a target on your back by moving into the city as well. All the more reason that that servant leadership that we see in the, in the first verse is huge. 
So what we see in chapter 11 is an opportunity to surrender among the people of God. And what follows is a list or an account of all the leaders, people, gatekeepers who inhabited the city. As we move into chapter 12, there's another list of the priests and the Levites. And that brings us to the ceremonial dedication of the wall. So at the end of chapter 12, we're going to skip to the end of chapter 12. We're going to read about the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And what that was, was that was a, a processional. I put another link uh, down in the resources at the bottom of the uh, notes. There's a bunch of maps that you can find, but this was the, one of the better ones that I could find, just to give us an idea of how this processional moved around the city wall. So as Jerusalem... The people of Jerusalem are, are dedicating the city. The way that it's described in chapters 12 is they, they started, it was two groups, and they started at the valley gate here. The first one went around through the fountain gate to the water gate, all the way up to the east gate. The second one went north, past the fish gate, the sheep gate, all sorts of gates, gates and towers, uh, to the east gate as well. What I love about this imagery and I shared this in, in uh, the invitation for this weekend, was this processional is just loud music, celebration, right? Nehemiah calls from the priests and the Levites from all the surrounding villages and all the people of Israel come to this dedication. You can imagine this processional moving around these two segments of the wall, ending at the east gate. So we think ahead towards next weekend being Palm Sunday where we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry. It's believed that he passed through that same east gate. The Mount of Olives would be right over here, passed through the east gate and had a direct shot to the temple area. And I just thought, what, how cool would it be to be able to take those two images in history and overlay them? See Nehemiah celebrating. Now, Nehemiah is, is more towards, I'd say it's right about the middle of the Old Testament story-wise. But chronologically, Nehemiah is a contemporary of Malachi who was, it's probably going to be in just 400 years. That's the, Malachi was the end of the Old Testament. And that's right before there's a 400-year sort of darkness where we don't hear from any of the prophets. And then Jesus is born. So Nehemiah and the construction of this wall is, is close to the birth of Jesus. So this same wall that they're celebrating on, this wall that they've constructed, this wall that they have this processional moving around, they end right at that east gate. And if we could just overlay those two things in history, we'd see Jesus entering in. We read in chapter 12, verse 27, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Israel's worship was an overflow of joy. They celebrated joyfully. It was a celebration. There was thanksgiving, and there was devotion. Nehemiah certainly had reason for thanksgiving, right? From the very start of the story. Had it not been for his brother's encounter with him at the palace, right? He wouldn't have heard of the news of the people of Israel. He wouldn't have been burdened 
of that passion. The Persian king, Artaxerxes, allowed Nehemiah even to go to Judah. Not only that, but he, he funded it. He funded his mission to Judah. There was protection during the journey. He had colleagues who shared in his vision and joined in the difficult work of constructing the wall in 52 days. Protection against their enemies. All this is culminating in this celebration as they're moving around the walls. They're considering all of these things. Their worship wasn't just out of duty. Their worship was a joyful celebration in response to all of these things. You almost get the sense that if you tried to kind of put a lid on this celebration, you wouldn't have been able to. I love what it says in in verse 43. It says, and on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. God had given them great joy. This wasn't something that they do. This was a response. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now imagine being one of those tribes or nations around this newly constructed city and you just hear from miles away this celebration happening. Oh, that we would have that same joy now in knowing what we have received in Christ that our worship would be something that could be heard from miles away that our worship could be something that even if someone tried to put a lid on it they just couldn't the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away that's similar to the response in Ezra when the temple was rebuilt look in Ezra 3 Verses 11 through 13. They're starting to lay the foundation of the temple. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people give a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord, as the foundation of the temple was going down, people gave out a great shout. And many of the older priests, older Levites and the family heads, those who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. One of my favorite verses here is, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. and The sound was heard from far away. That our worship and our dedication would be similar to that, amen? True response to who God is and all that he has done in our lives. So there we have it, chapters 11 and 12. I'd encourage you to go back and and read through as well. We see devotion, the devotion of the people, their willingness to surrender and to step into a space that required so much sacrifice, but the the willingness to surrender to God's will. The fact that this, this city that's being inhabited and these walls that were built just connect linearly to Jesus' triumphal entry. The joy and the celebration that happens in those moments. 
for Israel. And we'll see next week as Ron Ware teaches in the last chapter of Nehemiah that, that quickly things can go south and how, re, how Nehemiah responds to that. But here we see the people rejoicing. We see celebration. So how does this connect to, with us? You know, certainly these biblical principles are ones that we can see in the book of Nehemiah. But how does it connect to us now as New Testament believers? And remember, when we study the Old Testament, we, don't, we want to be sure we're not reading too far into it and that we're appreciating it for the story that it is and how it connects to God's sovereignty and to God's story as we're a part of it. But I had this thought that through sacrifice and surrender, Israel was called to repopulate a literal city. And Jesus calls us to figuratively do the same. What do I mean by that? Look at Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and, they, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think the principles that we see in Nehemiah are a reminder of what Jesus is saying here. Servant leadership, pursuit of God's will, but then being that city on a hill, being that light to those around us. We had a while back, we had a series called Salt and Light where we talked about oikos evangelism, right? Our spheres of influence. Courage to step into conversations and, opportunity, and opportunities that God was placing before us, right? Servant leadership, pursuing God's will. Remember, how does it say that we discern God's will? Right, it's by, by living the way that Jesus taught through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this opportunity. And our response is worship, right? We dedicate the city of our hearts. And our response is celebration, thanksgiving, and devotion, similar to the people of Israel. That's what we're going to be doing the weekend after Easter when we have Baptism Sunday. Those people are going to be just like that city that was built. They're going to be kind of putting themselves on the map as believers, professing their faith publicly. That's your next step. If you're bumping into the gospel for the first time, or responding to the gospel for the first time, or if you have already but you haven't been baptized yet, that is your next step public profession of your faith. If you'd like to learn more about that, please reach out to us. Like I said, if you're bumping into the gospel for the first time and you want someone to pray with you or you want someone to speak with you, you can email prayer at communitycovenant.church. Well, what we see here is we see devotion, 
we see dedication. Over all of it, we see surrender. I pray that, that we as a people, through these seasons that we're moving through, and our opportunities in oikos evangelism to reach out to the spheres, the many spheres of influence that we're a part of. As we continue to learn more and more about the person of Jesus Christ and how to align our hearts with his heart, it all falls under surrender. Pray that we are a people who surrenders. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to just gather around your word. The opportunity to share. The opportunity to learn. And grateful for the space that you've provided for us to gather. Now, God, I pray that these um, words that are spoken, these songs that are being sung, these words that are being sung, I pray that these truths will penetrate our heart, continue to transform our minds, continue to renew us, continue to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. God, it's moments like this that we're so thankful for the power, the person that is your Holy Spirit. God, your involvement in our lives, knowing that we are not uh, in this alone, but that it's only made possible through the power of your spirit. God, I pray for anyone who wants to know more about you, wants to know more about the saving power of Jesus, that you give them the boldness and the confidence to reach out. The boldness and the confidence, much like we're gonna see in a few weeks during baptisms to, to say, I'm, I'm here, I'm on the map, this is who I am. Populating the city of my heart. I'm building it on the name of Jesus. I we pray that you move and work in the hearts of people as we continue to live our lives as kingdom citizens, as people of your kingdom, God, give us hearts of surrender. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes all of these things possible. God, without, without your son, Jesus, we have nothing. We're so thankful. We pray these things in his mighty, mighty name. Amen.